you have some kind of relational conflict in your future. You have drama in your future, and you know it's true. At some point, probably sooner rather than later, you will get upset. Someone you love and care about will also get upset. It could be conflict with somebody here. Maybe the person next to you. It could be conflict with your spouse. It could be conflict with your children. It could be conflict with your coworkers or your boss. Don't think that conflict might happen. Think that conflict will happen. This conflict you may have might get heated and might get angry. This conflict you have might never be voiced if you're like me, a perpetual people pleaser. You will not voice your conflict, but will stuff it down and just let it brew inside of you. The conflict might start over a topic that's altogether very dumb. How many of our arguments have started with something that's so trivial? Where does conflict come from? How do we overcome it? You know, we might have the picture of the first Christians to be nothing but passionate and bold for the Lord. Uh, and they were. They, they went out to new places. They told people about Jesus. They risked being violent against. They were risked being arrested. They risked dying. The Lord used them in big and mighty ways. You know, thousands of people came to know him. Thousands of people were saved. But, you know, absent from our picture of the first Christians is conflict. But, you know, what was there. There was plenty of conflict among the first Christians. You read Corinthians. There were factions in the church in Corinth. There was Paul's disagreement with Barnabas. There was Peter's sin in Antioch. And for the Jewish Christians spread abroad from their homeland, there was conflict there as well. These are the people James is writing to. So it's a problem that faced them. It's a problem that still faces us. Conflict. Where does it come from? How do we overcome it? We're continuing in our study of the book of James. It's actually a letter. Uh, we're picking up at the tail end of chapter 3, which you can find if you're looking at a Bible that looks like this, the pew rack in front of you, page 1012. Chapter 3, there's a big number. Verse 13, that's a small little number. It has that uh, heading right above it called Wisdom from Above. We're going to read through chapter 4, verse 12. A little bit la larger of a chunk today. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. 
you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are no longer a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you? To judge your neighbor. This is God's word. If we can summarize our passage and our time this morning into one succinct point, it would be this. Healing for our conflict comes from humbly and actively yielding our hearts to God. Healing for our conflict comes from humbly and actively yielding our hearts to God. Now we're going to unpack that because you might think conflict is way more complicated than that. Well, we'll go through this in three steps. It's the three steps that James walks uh, with his conflict-stricken readers. The first step is what we should be, chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. Second step, why we aren't what we should be, chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. And the last step, how we become what we should be, chapter 4, verses 7 to 12. First, what we should be. Having finished this discussion on the words they use, Words having the power to build up and also the power to bring down. Words being a window into the impossible problem of our divided hearts. James then moves into our discussion today of how they relate to one another. And he dissects the conflict that marks so many of their relationships. Now this transition from words to conflict isn't very hard to see. You know, so often our words fuel the conflicts we have. So James starts off, he asks a series of questions in this passage. You see the one he opens up with in verse 13, the very first question. He asks, who is wise and understanding among you? I wonder how you would answer that, how we would answer that as a group. Who is wise and understanding among you? Who would we put forward? What would be our criteria? You know, who is the oldest? Who has the most diverse experiences, been to the most countries, been to the most places? Who has the kind of job that requires thinking and, you know, wisdom? Uh, Who has the most Bible knowledge? Who has the most degrees? Who is wise and understanding among you? Now, it's not that none of those criteria matter, but is that what James says? What does James say? He asks us, who is wise and understanding among you? Then he goes on to say, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So we can have all the criteria we just talked about, all the criteria we might think makes a person wise. But if you have all those things and don't humbly live out love for other people, you are not wise. So an athlete and playing any sports, 
He can have all the athleticism in the world. He can have the biggest biceps. He can have the fastest legs. But if he does not produce results on the field, then he is not a good player. So it is here. Wisdom is not just seen in knowledge. It's seen in living. Wisdom is not just intellectual. It's relational. But from the start, James shows them what they should be. They should be those who are wise, those who conduct themselves in good, humble ways. Now, he's going to show us more what that looks like, but he starts to talk about that it's a very real possibility that we aren't what we should be. That's a very real possibility. Just because we know the path of wisdom does not mean we are traveling down the path of wisdom. There's another path we might find ourselves on, and we might even call it wise, but it is actually foolish. This is what James talks about in verses 14 to 16. This false and bad kind of wisdom. It has the opposite of meekness and humility at its heart. Notice it has pride at its heart. So fueling all of their fights, all of their bickering, all of their divisions, James says is bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Now, we see how these words are used in other places in the Bible, other places in the New Testament, and it sheds light on what these words mean. So in a place like Acts chapter 5, the Jewish religious authorities were jealous of the apostles. You know, the apostles challenged their teaching, and the apostles were getting more and more of a hearing from the people. And so the religious authorities were jealous. And so those who have these qualities that James talks about here, bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, these are those who are very quick to the draw, have an over-concern for their position, for their dignity, for their reputation, their honor. And when that's threatened, they use any means necessary, including divisions, including attacks, to promote their own interests. And so James tells those who have these qualities, he says, don't boast. Do not brag about this. Do not be false to the truth. They should not be proud of what they're doing because it lies about what true wisdom does. True wisdom doesn't make people jealous and selfish. It makes people humble and loving. Pride, then, is nothing to be proud of. So James's readers aren't what they should be. But James goes on in verse 15, dissects more of this false kind of wisdom. He says, he says the source, where it come, comes from. This kind of wisdom that does not lead to good works and humility. It is from the world. It's from the flesh. It's from the devil. All these direct opposite of being from above, being from God. So verse 16, James tells the outcome of this kind of wisdom. It produces disorder, every kind of vile practice. This kind of wisdom leads to conflict. It sets people apart. This is the other path we very may well find ourselves on but call it wisdom and think we're wise. This is not what we should be. But what about what we should be? In contrast to all of that, in contrast to the wisdom that is earthly, unspiritual, demonic, is the wisdom whose source, notice, is from above. It's a wisdom that does not come from us. It does not come from people. It comes from the Lord. It's a wisdom that does not produce disorder in every vile practice. But notice all those flurry of things it produces. Purity, peace, gentleness, reasonableness, mercy, goodness, impartiality, sincerity. 
Now, each one of those fruits, you can pick apart. You can dissect each one of those. But just to look at the whole produce as a whole, one big picture, see that God's wisdom brings harmony, authentic, sincere harmony, unlike the world's wisdom, which sets people apart, which brings about division. God's wisdom, the wisdom that comes from above, brings sincere, authentic harmony and peace. It brings people together. It considers others instead of looking out for itself alone. And it's contagious. Verse 18, it brings more fruit. Friends, this is what we should be. We should have the wisdom from God. So I ask you, are you what you should be? Are you wise? Here's how you know. You take stock of all of your relationships right now, all the people you interact with the most. Church, family, friendship, school, workplace, so on. Are you a peacemaker in those relationships? Are you a peacemaker? Do you promote unity? I'm not talking about being a pushover. I'm not talking about never taking a stand for the Lord, not being concerned that God's name is honored. I'm talking about being concerned with promoting the good of other people promoting the good of an entire group, not just promoting the good of yourself. Are you a peacemaker? This shows your wisdom. Now, I wonder how much less conflict we would have if just our gut instinct, our natural reaction, was promoting the good of other people instead of promoting the good of ourselves. I wonder how much less conflict we would have if we had that kind of wisdom. Now, friends, it is embarrassingly obvious from our marriages, from how we approach church each Sunday. It is embarrassingly obvious that we are not what we should be. We are not what we should be. Conflict still racks our lives. We feel it every day. We feel it at least every week. So we need the wisdom that promotes humility and goodness. And this has to come from God because it is not natural to us. We think of how many divisions there are in the world. Think of how polarized our world is. If you are on the internet, open Twitter and see how polarized the world is. How hostile the world is. How many groups there are. How many different ways to have your identity that pits you against other people. Think of how many broken relationships there are. In the sobering thought that the wisdom that comes from the world that sets people apart, that wisdom can creep into churches. That wisdom can creep into churches. That's why James is so warning them here. In churches, we could still seek our own gain. We can be thoughtless to the good of others. We can become divided. We can fight. We can bicker. So we don't stop needing the wisdom that comes from above, just like we don't stop needing our Lord, Jesus Christ. Jesus is called the wisdom from God, the wisdom of God. We read other places in the Bible. What is the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear of the Lord, it, it begins with an awe of wonder of the creating, loving God. This is the wisdom that leads to humility, that leads to good, that leads to considering others. It leads to a harvest of righteousness, as James says, a fruit of a life pleasing to God and spreading to other people. We never stop needing this wisdom that comes from above. 
Just like we never stop needing our Lord Jesus Christ, the wisdom of God, wisdom personified, wisdom encapsulated in one person. Think of how James describes wisdom here, ultimately portrayed in Christ, who put others before himself to the point that he died, even death on a cross. And to the extent that we embrace Christ, is to the extent we will become more and more wise in the way James speaks of here, a wisdom that is humble and a wisdom that loves others. To the extent that we embrace Christ, the wisdom of God, we become what we should be. So friends here, it's pretty clear we know what we should be. We know where to go for what we should be. So if we know all this, what's the issue? Why can't we just stop here? Well, we still fight. (laughs) We still quarrel. We still bicker. We still have jealousy and selfishness. Why? Why, if we know all this, why do we do that? Well, James answers this in the next section. Brings us to the next step in our journey for following uh, the Lord and healing our conflicts. Why we aren't what we should be. Look with me at chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us? See how James starts in verse 1. See, James doesn't ask, what caused that fight with you guys? You you remember that one time Bernice and Ethel got into it at the potluck? That was nuts. What was up with that? (laughs) No, he says, what caused quarrels, plural, fights, plural? What caused these? This is a frequent occurrence. So James is like a referee. You know, many times interrupting the game, too many times in my opinion, a referee after a close play will stop the game, go to the sideline, go under the hood thing, and try to figure out what happened. Figure out the cause of the play. Figure out the truth. Look at it from every single angle. And then come back and make his conclusion. So James's conclusion here, what causes quarrels and what causes fights? He concludes that underneath their conflict is a war for their cravings. Underneath their conflict is a war for their cravings. He talks about their passions, their desires, what they covet. To put it simply, to put it simply, explaining their conflict, they have conflict because they aren't getting what they want. They have conflict because they aren't getting what they want. So we have to know how our desires work, the influence they wield over our lives. If you think about it, if you think about it, We always do what we most want to do. We always do what we most want to do. Our desires explain our decisions. Well, I can anticipate an objection here. Let's say afterwards, Lord forbid, someone holds you at knife point and says, give me your wallet. And you give that person your wallet. And you say, well, I did not want to do that. I did not want to give that person my wallet. Well, Yeah, you did. 
Of course, maybe you didn't, you weren't planning on giving that person your wallet, but there is something you want more than keeping your wallet. You want to keep your life and your safety. And friends, that's a good desire. You do what you most want to do. So here, it works the same with conflict. Our desires underlie our conflict. Our cravings underlie our conflict. Author Paul David Tripp describes the process of desire, how desire can just unravel and wreak havoc on our lives. The desire that relates to what James says in verse 2. You do not have, uh, you desire and do not have, so you murder. The stuff they don't have are cravings. The process goes something like this. We start with desires, what we want. So maybe it's like, I want respect. Not a bad thing to want. Wanting respect. But then we trickle down a little bit. We keep on going. And our desire, we get into trouble when our desires turn into a demand. Going from, I want respect, to I must have respect. I demand it. So when we demand our desires, then we will think of our desires as a need. Going from, I want respect, to I must have respect, to I need respect. I cannot live without respect. So when we think of our desire as a need, then we will make it an expectation. If this is something we need, then the God or other people around us who think they care about us, they should give it to us. It's something we need. So God and people in our lives should give us respect if we think of what we need. But when we don't get what we expect, then there is disappointment. Blame. You didn't do what I expected for you. So I blame you. And when we are disappointed, then we turn to punishment. Because you didn't do that for me, I will do this and retaliate. So here's the process again, just to summarize. We go from desire to demand to need to expectation to disappointment to punishment. Just unravel. That is the process. And for here, James says it, it goes all the way into murder. They don't have, they want what they don't have. It auto, uh, leads to their murdering. And it's not necessarily physically killing, at least that's how I see it. I don't think it's necessarily physical murder here, or else James probably would have talked about this more. He probably would have led with, like, somebody killed somebody in this church. Keep in mind that Jesus says hatred of others is at the heart of murder. What James is saying is probably along those lines. But back to this process, this process of unraveling of our desires, continuing in our desires. You see how that would fracture our relationships with people? See how that would fracture our relationship with God? Of going in on our cravings. James says it makes us so self-sufficient that we don't even bother to pray. And if we do pray, we ask God to rubber stamp our cravings. Ask God to bend to our will. So it creates two errors in prayer. Either prayerlessness on one hand, communicating that we don't need God or that God can't do anything. Or presumption. Prayerlessness or presumption. That what we want is more important than what God wants. These are good barometers for our prayer life. Just ask as a sidebar, like, are you praying? And are you praying with the right priorities and the right motives? So, why aren't they what they should be? 
It's because they want what they don't have. Their cravings underlie their conflict. Well, as one pastor puts it, conflicts do not create sin. Conflicts reveal sin. Verses 4 to 5, James states this problem in a different way, which shows us how serious it is. James calls them spiritual adulterers. It's a familiar image to the Bible, especially in the book of Hosea, which we read earlier. Now, what is adultery at its heart? Adultery is when we give the love we promise to another to someone else. The love we've promised to a certain person when we give that love to someone else. So spiritual adultery is when we give the love that belongs to God alone to something or someone else. Putting something in God's place. Now verse 5 is a little tricky to translate, but it gets across the idea that's very prevalent in the Bible. God's jealousy. James saying our relationship with God is not good if we are cheating on him. Pretty common sense. Pretty straightforward. Just like a good husband is rightly jealous for his wife's love because he loves her and they belong to each other. So God is the one who made us and God has a rightful claim on our lives. He has a rightful claim, friends, even on our love. So dissecting this problem, why they aren't what they should be. Underneath all of their conflicts are their cravings. And underneath all of their messed up cravings is a messed up love, a misplaced love, loving something or someone the things of the world, more than God. Putting something else in God's place. So friends, why aren't we what we should be? Do you think of your conflicts like this? Is this how you explain it? Is this how serious you explain your conflicts? A language like spiritual adultery. That's not on my lips very often. I think there are endless ways that we can minimize conflicts, not take it that seriously, kind of dismiss them. You know, we say things like, you know, him and, him and me just don't mesh well sometimes. You know, our personalities clash. We're just different. Uh, you know, we have some struggles at home. Very light statements kind of cover up the conflict. Now, they're not false statements necessarily, but we have to admit the problem is much deeper and realer and serious than that. So we think of conflict in this way, of why we aren't what we should be. Is this how you explain it? Think of it in this way. When you find two kids arguing, two kids fighting, and then they stop, and what do you say? Explain yourself. And what's the first words that comes out of their mouth? He started it. She started it. You know, we don't stop saying that. We just say it in more grown-up, polite ways. James has already talked about this in chapter 1, verse 14. He does the same thing here. When he asks what causes fights and quarrels among them, notice who he doesn't talk about. He doesn't talk about, and your mother-in-law causes fights and quarrels among you. You know, your spouse causes fights and quarrels among you. No, he says, your passions, you desire, you covet. Reminds us of the words that Jesus before you remove the speck in your brother's eye, remove the plank in your own eye. So in our conflicts, do we deal honestly with our cravings, what we want but don't have? Deal honestly with our desires. So I want you to think about the conflict that awaits you in the near future. Maybe you're in it now, you just press pause to come to church. That is a good thing, friends, by the way. What do you want 
that you're not getting? What do you want that you're not getting? It could be affection. It could be attention. It could be vindication. It could be control. It could be a stress-free life. It could be pleasure. What do you want that you're not getting? And what happens when you don't get that? How do you respond? How do you handle that? True wisdom leads us to examine our cravings and desires. True wisdom leads us to consider how they will impact others, how our desire impacts other people. True wisdom considers what our desires and cravings show about our relationship with God. We are not what we should be. We should be those who have true godly wisdom and that shows up in how we relate to people, that we are humble, doing them good, promoting harmony. But we know too well We are not what we should be. Conflict after conflict. Why? Well, we said because our cravings are too strong. Our desires are misplaced. We want what we shouldn't want, and we want what we do want too badly. So now what? Where do we go from here? How do we become what we should be? Let's pick up in verse 6 of chapter 4. James writes, But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are no longer a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So out of our mess, we know we aren't what we should be. We are frustrated by it. Out of our mess, what is the first word that we hear? It is a word of grace. It's a word of grace. I shared with someone this week that it's not enough to be convinced of our sin. In this case, it's not enough to recognize our sinful cravings. No, we have to be gripped by God's grace. We have to be gripped by God's grace. We can't just recognize the awfulness of our sin. That's necessary, yes. We have to see, though, more than that, that there is something, no, someone better. Someone better. If we do what we want the most, if we always do what we want the most, then we have to no longer want sin the most. We have to want God the most. That only comes by God's grace. That's where we must begin. In his uh, massive novel, Les Miserables, Victor Hugo uh, begins his story of Jean Valjean being released from the chain gang, having been spent there for 19 years. Jean Valjean is prevented from thriving as he re-enters society because he's an ex-convict. He can't find work. So in despair, he returns to a life of petty crime. And he gets caught stealing silver from a church. At this church, the bishop had offered him shelter. But when the police catch him and bring him back to this church, everything changes for Jean Valjean. The bishop denies the charges, insists that the silver that he stole was a gift, and gives Valjean the most valuable silver candlesticks in the entire church. Valjean 
deserves judgment and condemnation, but instead he received grace. And not just forgiveness of his sin, he received an abundant, over-the-top gift. And grace transforms Valjean. He sings, to the whirlpool of my sin, I'll escape now from the world, from the world of Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean is nothing now. Another story must begin. We must begin with God's grace. That pardoning voice we hear, we sung about earlier. How do we become what we should be? It's only by God's grace. Friends, where would we be without the promise that God gives more grace? Where would we be without that promise? God gives us grace to forgive. Grace that picks us up again. Grace that keeps us walking. Grace that gets us home. If we're going to use that image of spiritual adultery, God finds us in bed with another lover and takes us back. That is grace. We become what we should be only by God's grace. But James goes on. He says we must receive God's grace. We must receive God's grace. We can use that as kind of the umbrella under which we can place the flurry of commands in verses 7 to 10. Now James summarizes what it means to receive God's grace in that very first command in verse 7 where he says submit yourselves therefore to God. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Now, our idea of submission, the first thing that comes to our minds, is probably laying down and doing nothing. Calling out uncle when you're wrestling. Tapping out. But the, the, the action that James has in mind here is not idly standing by. It is not doing nothing. A better word than submits, one commentator says, is probably enlist. Enlist. We're not standing by. We're taking up allegiance to God, coming under his good, loving authority. Enlist. Receiving God's grace requires enlisting, coming under God's command. Now, what is involved in that? I think at least two components. What does it mean to come under God's command? First component is humility. We're not very surprised, are we? We've talked a lot about humility. We will not come under God's command if we are still impressed with our own command. We will not come under God's command unless we acknowledge our sinful cravings, humility. We will not come under God's command unless we trust that he is above us and that he is good. And coming under God's command and listing reminds us of what we were before we did that for the first time. Before we came under God's command for the first time. Now, we talked a lot about conflict this morning. But before God's grace, you know, the greatest conflict we had was our conflict with God. That is the greatest conflict we had. Friends, before God's grace, we were not on God's side. The Bible says before his grace, we were enemies of God. We stood against God, and therefore, God stood against us. But thanks be to God, the Bible says, thanks be to God, that while we were enemies against God, Christ died for us. While we had the greatest conflict imaginable, Christ died for us, taking the punishment we deserve, resolving the conflict so that we can be forgiven, so that we can come back to God. 
so that we can find life again under his loving command. Friends, it is possible that you are here this morning still in conflict with God. What James would say, what we say, what God says, is to humble yourself and draw near to God through Christ. Believe in Christ, who lived a life without any sinful desires, but died for yours. He was raised to prove that that payment was in full and finished. Do that today. If you want to know more about what that means, any of us would be happy to talk to you about that. But even after the first time, enlisting in God, under God's command, that requires humility. Even after that first time, we do not stop doing that. We now walk in humility. Now, what would a commander say if his troops were marching in enemy territory? He would tell them, get low and stay low. Here's what God's telling us here. That's what we hear from our Lord. God's warning us not just from attacks that come from without, though there are some. He's also warning us of attacks that come from within, our own hearts even. That we are racked with conflict tells us we still continually need to come under God's command. And if we don't, our commander is going to grab us by the scruff of the neck and bring us down for our good. He's going to do that for each one of us. One day it will be too late when he does that. Now, friends, you think about this. Get low, stay low. This walk of humility. This is the way of our Savior. This is the way of Christ, who humbled himself by taking the form of a servant, humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And what did God do? God raised him up, giving him the name above all names. Get low, stay low, and God will lift you up. Not yourself. God will. Trust him for that. So receiving grace. We begin with God grace, God's grace to, come what, uh, to become what we need, but we must receive God's grace. It means yielding to God's command, enlist, enlisting. First component to do that is humility. But looking at verses 7 to 10, we also see the second component of coming under God's command is taking a stance against his enemies taking a stance against his enemies. By the very act of taking the Lord's side, we resist the devil, and the devil flees. And we say, what a coward. And we say, what a coward. That bully is not going to mess with you when you are near your heavenly Father. By the very act of taking the Lord's side, we take a new stance against our sin. Turning back to God means turning away from your sin. Now, James talks a lot about mourning, weeping. And he's not saying that the Christian life is void of joy. In fact, very early on in chapter 1, he says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, knowing that God works in you through them. The Christian life is not void of joy, but the Christian life means we no longer have joy over the sin that remains in us. We are serious about it. We grieve over it. So we become what we should be by God's grace. We must receive God's grace, enlist, come under his command. That means getting low, staying low, walking in humility. That means taking a stance against God's enemy, the devil and our sin. So let's apply all of that. Let's apply all of that to our conflicts, okay? Our cravings, the stuff we want but don't have. 
When you go to deal with the stuff you want but don't have, the stuff you crave, will you talk about it in a way that gives excuses, kind of goes around the issue? Or will you talk about it honestly, head on? Will you acknowledge your sinful cravings and desires and sincerely confess them? Friends, just a reminder that you are free to do this, that you do not have to hide from this. Just a reminder, brother or sister in Christ, that Jesus paid, died for that sinful craving and invites you to confess it and leave it behind. So instead of going down the normal road of this unfulfilled craving, you know, becoming a demand and becoming a need and becoming an expectation, and then when we don't give it, get it, then punishing. Instead of going down that normal process, when you deal with what you don't have, won't you instead come under God's command? Well, that's going to take humility. That's going to take setting aside your pride. It's going to take setting aside your wants. Would you trust him? Would you lay your frustrations, lay your worries, lay your disappointments at God's feet and trust that he loves you? And trust that he knows what he's doing. Y'all, if you need a reminder of that, Jesus died for you. God did not spare his own son. Your father is trustworthy. So we tell ourselves what we think that we need. I'm telling you, our all-knowing father knows what we actually need way, way better than us. Trust him, even if that means submitting your unfulfilled desires at his feet, even if it means that. Y'all, that is what it means to draw near to God. Not just about coming to a worship service. Right there, that is the heart of drawing near to God. Trusting him with everything that you have. Trusting him with all the stuff you want but don't have. And laying it at his feet, that is drawing near to God. And that is when we experience God the most. That is when he draws near to us. Our conflict shows that our hearts aren't what they should be. God has grace. And we receive his grace by humbly acknowledging our sins, humbly trusting his goodness. And friends, the last two verses of James's section here show us that those who receive God's grace joyfully follow God's commands. Those who receive God's grace joyfully follow God's commands. This is how James ends his section in verses 11 and 12. It says, those who receive God's grace don't stand in judgment of his commands, say, oh, these, don't, these may apply to other people, but they don't apply to me in this situation. No, they love God enough to trust him and listen to his commands and to let God be God. Those who receive God's grace will love God enough to follow what he says, even in how we treat people. This is when we get a little taste of what we should be. Instead of conflict fueled by our selfishness, we have a love of a neighbor fueled by God's grace. A little taste of what we should be. Christian, you are ruled and saved by God. He has shown you how to treat other people. James isn't saying that we should ignore the clear sin we see in others. That's addressed in other places in the Bible. We're not talking about that. James is talking about the judging that belongs to God alone, determining someone's spiritual destiny. 
James is talking about conflict that quickly turns personal. So here's the rub. How you treat other people shows whether or not you are receiving God's grace and walking humbly before him. How you treat other people shows whether or not you believe God has the right to tell you how to live. How you treat other, belie- other people shows whether or not you believe that what God says is what is good for you. So when, are you, when you are on the cusp of yet another conflict this week, it could be when the clock strikes noon and you walk out that door. When you are on the cusp of another conflict this week, will you examine your heart and try to find what you are craving but not getting? Will you remember God's grace to you in Christ, the one who resolved the conflict that you had with him, the conflict that was your fault, and he did the work to resolve it, to forgive you of it? Will you trust his goodness enough to lay that at his feet? Will you trust him enough to show grace to other people, the grace he's shown to you? Now, maybe if you're going to eat afterwards, going out to eat to lunch, maybe this is a good lunch topic. How God's grace would lead you to handle the conflict you have with other people differently. It was a good conflict, a good topic at lunch. So to conclude, friends, we should be those marked not by humility, not by conflict, but by love and peace. How do we become what we should be? If we are to become what we should be, it can be only by God's grace. And praise God that his grace has appeared in his son, Jesus Christ, the true wisdom from above. And praise God that his grace remains and he gives more of it. But we must receive it. We must submit to God, enlist in his command. That takes humility. That takes standing against God's enemies. We show we receive God's grace when we treat other people, not the way that we want to treat other people, but the way God wants us to treat other people. That's the whole passage in summary, in a whole. To share a John Newton quote, I've shared it a few weeks ago. I'm going to share it again because it is so good. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, who was once a slave trader, but God saved him out of his grace. He said, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Friends, we aren't what we should be. We know that. But we are saved by one who is what we should be. And one day, we will be like him. One day, we will be what we should be. In the meantime, friends, humbly walk in God's grace. Let's pray. Lord, we confess our conflicts. We confess our pride. We confess there are so many crevices and corners of our hearts where we hide cravings, hide discontent, hide bitterness, hide anxiety, hide anger. Would you search us and see if there is any false way in us? And would you heal us, God, by your grace? Help us to lay the stuff we want but don't have at your feet. Help us to treat others and do them good as you did to us. I'll do this for us today. We pray for your glory. 
In Jesus' name, amen.